Welcome to this latest segment of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your co-host, Matt Zemek. Uh, this show is produced by Sakib Ali, and uh, we have freelance writer and reporter Karen Health to join us once again to facilitate another conversation on the economics of tennis in this pandemic and how the sport on the other side can hopefully find a way to provide more of a financial footing for lower-ranked players. That is the constant and continuous theme of this uh, multi-part spring series. So, uh, Karen, welcome back, uh, and and, uh, you'll get to introduce our latest guest on the show. Thank you so much. So, our latest guest is joining us from Miami. Um, He is a global business consultant with an MBA from Boston University, which, oh, by the way, Labor Cup 2021 now will be hosted there. Uh, I like to look at him. He's just a stats guy with real financial analysis of the industry. Very interesting, very eye-opening viewpoints and facts. You know, he's got the numbers and these numbers don't lie. And so I really want to welcome Javier Palunk and, you know, let him really have the floor because I think the things that he has to share are extremely compelling, interesting, and uh, so relevant and important for where we are right now with tennis. So welcome, Javier. Thank you. Thank you for the time and thank you for allowing me the opportunity to speak. Absolutely. So let's start with the, the I don't know, billion pound gorilla maybe is the good way to say it. Uh, obviously the finance side of tennis is really your sweet spot, although you have many. Uh, long-standing problems within this industry in terms of equitable distribution of wealth down to the players, probably even down to the stringers and coaches and other people that we haven't really even talked about. And you put out an article recently that, you know, talks about the carnival of tennis, um, you know, and the, the actors versus those who are running the show. So tell us a little bit about that article, some of the themes within it, why you wrote it, and some of the relevant, most, I'll say most uh, compelling points in that article that you would like to highlight. Sure. Uh, I, this week, of, I mean, this month, because of the pandemic and being in Miami, uh, we're lucky. We have a court nearby, so we can, we can play until the order came that we're no longer allowed to play. So I had a little bit of time to uh, to write and think. I'm always thinking about tennis because I love it. I love it from the moment I learned. And I actually love it because I'm so bad at it. That's key to understand. <laughs> and, and the majority of the people that love it aren't that good at it. And this is key to understand because when you love something that you're not very good at, it means it's so attractive that you want to continue to keep doing and learning it. And, and, and of course, when you have superstars that play the game, and I think that anybody that's in the top 100 is a superstar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you start analyzing it from that point of view. And because I'm so involved, I have two kids. I'm very involved here in the Miami area. A lot of these people come to me and ask me for help. And 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 because I'm a global consultant, meaning uh, I usually can see and identify a problem quickly without being working in the same place for months at a time. Usually it's just days, if not weeks, right? 
And so I wrote this article because I wanted to find a way to help the players understand their role into how this industry functions. And I thought, what could be the easiest way for me to make this, uh, this comprehensible to everybody so it's, it's unequivocally clear how and where they play in this dynamic? And I related it to the carnival uh, because, of course, a carnival is an event that is run by a few people and goes around from place to place and needs hired work. And the hired work in this case are the players. And of course, the players can be segmented in the superstars, the better than the stars, and then the average. Please note, all of them are fantastic. Uh, but they, this is how their their caste system works, let's, let's say. And so by writing the article, I also took a little bit of time because there's stock in the industry and everybody's aware of it. Well, how much should be giving to the players that are not going to be making any money uh, because of this pandemic, which could be two, three months, or it could be two to six months. Uh, and, and therefore, I thought, oh, my God, I know some of these people. Some of these people follow me on social media. And I've spoken to some of them, and they just asked me for advice. And some of them are actually well-known. Other coaches are well-known as well. Some of them are just not known by anybody. But in the end, it's mostly young people who need guidance and help. And usually their support teams, unless you're in the top top echelon, are just them and their parents and maybe them and some friend or them and some coach. And I always feel that they are at a disadvantage of knowledge when they deal to these multi-million dollar corporations that have very smart people running them. And they run them, of course, to the advantage of themselves, in my opinion. And it, they do take advantage of the lower educated uh, people, and they do take advantage of knowledge, the knowledge that they have that the others don't. And, this and let me just interject here. Not only not educated, and I don't think you mean that the players aren't intelligent. It's just Correct. they haven't gotten advanced education because you can't Correct. if you're playing tennis. And they're so young that Correct. they just don't have the life experience, so they're vulnerable. Correct. So, so because of the choices that they've made, they're very smart. To play tennis, you got to be very smart, and to play tennis at a very high level, you got to be extremely smart. But, but, but with regards to the business that they're in, I don't think it's clear to the majority of them. And so, when when they talk to me and call me and tell me these things, I said I'll write something that it makes it clear, and hopefully, I can help. I can help at least by giving clarity as to what industry the players they're in and what industry the events are in it. When I say the events, I mean, obviously, the Grand Slams, which are the four greatest revenue producers for the sport. Then come the Masters, 1,000. Those events do also produce enough revenue and money. They are profitable. And then the other events is questionable whether they can make money or not. As a matter of fact, I would say a lot of the 250 events probably will disappear. And a lot, I mean, at least 30%. Uh, and then the masters will survive, of course, but then the players don't really understand how they make their living. And I don't mean I don't mean it in a way that they, if they win, of course, they're going to make a living. But whenever you enter a profession, I think if I was to become a lawyer, I need to know exactly what the path is, how it's going to work, etc. So I make that conscious decision. I think players need help in this regard because I think they are being taken advantage of, in my opinion, they are the attraction of the event. They are the people who actually produce the time of entertainment 
that is valuable. And I think it's only logical and reasonable that they get a fair share of that of that that they produce, which is the entertainment. And the, that's why I wrote it, because I felt that I can do something to help, given that I am older, obviously, and I have a lot of experience. And I try to help by by putting my points of view, which, of course, by some people they would oppose. I respect anybody that opposes my point of view. But I usually speak with facts. So, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but nobody's entitled to their facts. So what I usually put out is my interpretation of the facts. Um, that's why and how I write. And that's such a common theme these days that you don't get to make up your own facts. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, we won't go there. Um, okay. So some things that popped out from that piece for me are... First, there's no power in fragmentation. So speak to that a little bit. Well, if uh, first the first point of the article is players need to understand what business they're in. And the business that they're in, in their minds, I believe, not for everybody, but let's speak in general terms. And when I say general terms, I mean over 60% of them, right? They believe they're in the, in the, in the business and the industry of tennis, of so professional tennis. And that's fine, and that is part of it, but it's very different than what the Grand Slam's business is. The Grand Slam's business is to produce entertainment. And to produce entertainment, uh, it's really important to have a great player and a great show, but it is just as important to have clean bathrooms, just as important as to have great food, just as important as to have enough breaks, uh, things to buy, an easy sell proposition, etc., etc. And so... If the players don't understand this, they make decisions based on their lack of understanding. And then when you see that there is fragmentation among the uh, the men's and the women's, the ITF and the ATP and the WTA, and then, of course, the rest of the events, it is impo impossible for the players who are the attraction to have any kind of leverage over any of uh, any of the mechanisms that the industry has put in place for them, the entertainment industry, in this case, that uses tennis, and this is key to understand. Because then they can't affect anything, especially if you add to that, they're from multiple countries. Then add to that that they're very young. Add to that that uh, only the ones that have a, uh, uh, a large enough revenue to, to bring a whole entourage with them and have a team, then it's different because once they have the team, the team actually takes care of making sure the player understands everything that there is to understand. But those are only a handful of players on the men's side and on the women's side. So if you are fragmented, like I just described, it is virtually impossible to change the system, impossible to have any advantage for the players when the players in this pandemic will reveal how important the players are and how much control the events actually have over the players, over their lives and over the entertainment while giving the individuals, these young individuals, very little say and very little power. And therein lies the problem, right? right. That, is, <laughs> okay. that is one of the problems, which is the fragmentation. There is yeah. another problem, I don't know if you want me, and here's, here's what I think is also really relevant. Uh, most of us, by human nature, are uh, seeking for our survival. And an entity, and an entity is 
the company, right? They also create a culture, and it is the culture of survival, survival of the fittest. What the French Open did is basically say, you can't take those dates, and at the end of the day, the dates are just convenient to me. Move aside whoever's in the middle. I take this space, and you move, and that's the end of that. And this, of course, is terrible for the sport because the sport lacks, in my understanding of it, a vision for it. Because the entertainment is one thing, let's entertain people, and please, this is also very important to understand. Who sits and watches a three to four hour match? I can tell you this. The other day I read an interview of uh, uh, Andy Murray from the Times of London, and he said, the matches are too long, I don't watch them. Andy Murray, yep. who's rehabilitating now. Which tells you, if a guy that's 28, I think, or 29, doesn't do it, uh, people under, forget it, they don't do it. Therefore, How can a five-year-old sit through a four-hour match? Correct, correct. And How so, can a parent enjoy sitting through a five-hour match with a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old? Right. Yeah. My kids play, ask them to watch a match. No way on earth are they going to watch a match. It's just not, not even humanely possible. They love a game, but they still won't see a match. There lies another problem. The lack of vision from these big seven, and the big seven are the four Grand Slams, the ATP, WTA, and the ITF, since they don't have a vision for the game because they have a vision for their entertainment, they are limiting the growth of the sport and the financials prove so, and everything they do is self-serving, not serving the sport. But here's the problem. The problem is that the fans are older. The problem is that the people that watch TV and are going to watch some of these events are people that actually are not going to play tennis or are leaving tennis already as it is. So that's why if you look at the revenues for the WTA, for example, now they're talking about a merger between the ATP and the WTA. Well, a lot of the revenue from the WTA comes from Asia. And it comes from Asia not because they have a lot of Asian players, but because Asia, China mostly, has a growing middle class and they don't have a sport that they play with. And these are big, they're, they're investing big time companies. But when you look at the stadium, when you look at a tennis channel or ESPN feed of one of these events, the courts are empty as well. There's, there's very few people in the stands. And so I think all these companies are self-serving to the detriment of the sport. And I can prove it with the numbers. And I would just briefly add on to that. I have been, I am the crazy person that will sit in the stands for five hours, but I know I'm unique. And I honestly see this whole box seat, box suite thing as a horrible aspect to live tennis. I understand the money behind it, but the fact that most of the people sitting in those box seats don't care about the sport, don't love the sport. They come as a social and networking activity when it gets down to the quarterfinals or better to be seen and get to say, I was there when Federer X, right? I, I saw Nadal Y. But those seats remain empty for like eight out of 10 days most of the time. And to me, there's an opportunity there for the events to somehow leverage that and Give those seats up as a charity donation and resell them. You know, Wimbledon does something that I do like where when people are leaving, they can turn in their tickets to be resold for, you know, <clears throat> five or 10 pounds to somebody who can run into a match in the middle of 
center court, you know, second match, maybe a doubles match or something like that, and have that center court experience for a little, you know, a, a small amount. And that is exciting. So I just want to throw that in there. This is true. And also one thing to keep in mind, and here I'm referring to the U.S. Open, the prices are so high that a lot of the tennis coaches, for example, you can't possibly afford to go and see. It's just not possible. And and so it becomes very expensive. Now, of course, they would say, well, yeah, but we have low prices. That's not the point. The point is the way it's set up, it is meant to be very expensive. And by being so expensive, it excludes a lot of people. So not only are we excluding people because of it's how expensive it is, we're missing an entire demographic. And that's where actually the future comes from and where the fans come from. And this is also highly, highly relevant to understand. And none of these companies, meaning the Grand Slam companies and ATP, WTA and ITF, necessarily care about this because if you go through their finances, you will see how their income is made up. And once you see how their income is made up, you will realize that what I'm saying is uh, unequivocally correct. And let me just tag on when you exclude those people from being able to have a seat in a, in a chair, you're excluding or shrinking your market share. That is correct. Not a, but the thing is this, tennis is competing. Tennis is competing, they, th- they say. If you listen to any of the things they say, well, tennis is competing with uh, soccer or football or baseball or basketball. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Tennis is competing. If you, if, what individualized sport is there that you would actually watch? Name the sport that is individual with multinational multinationals week after week. There isn't such an event. There isn't. So, so incorrectly they compare it to these massive <clears throat> events and sports. But the truth is, they're comparing a team sport with an individual sport. Here's what's wrong with every time they say that I, I, my blood boils. Oh, we, it's the, if we just had the best athletes from basketball, you could never have the best athletes for basketball because any kid can play basketball in any street corner with a ball that's $5. To play tennis to any high level, you need thousands of dollars and thousands of hours. It is virtually impossible. So not only are you excluding the kids, you are excluding the fans. And the fans that you got are old. And guess what? Not only are they old, nothing wrong with being old. I'm old. I was saying, you're calling me old. <laughs> but they don't play the sport. That's even worse. And here's the reason why that's worse. Because if you're an old guy like I am, I'm 50 years old, right? I'm an anchor to the sport. If my kids are going to go and see it because I like it, right? I'm going to bring my nephew, anybody. And everybody that knows me knows I love tennis. So I am an anchor to them. I would draw them to the sport. However, let's say I'm, I just go to an event and I'm not an anchor to the sport. Then there's nothing, nothing that would actually relate or try to attract the young kids to the sport because they have nothing to and nobody to relate to. And this is so important to comprehend. The events will make money. Yes, they will. But I just, I just finished analyzing the financials of the U.S open if you want me to comment about that by all means please okay as of december 2019 total revenue 
$485 million. That's half a billion dollars. However, ticket revenues, $161 million or 33%. Broadcast revenues, $140 million or 29%. Mm-hmm. Sponsorship revenue, $99 million or 20%. Corporate hospitality, $42 million or 9%. Tennis programs, $8 million. And that means like leagues. Eight million out of half a billion. Mm. Membership revenues, 19 million. That means when people pay $20, $20 or $40 to be a member. But here's the key. Tennis programs, 8 million. That's 2%. <laughs> what does that tell you? It tells you they are in entertainment business. Tennis is, if you want to know where you spend your money and what you value, you show me your balance sheet. And if I see how you spend your money, I can tell you even if you may not know, that what you value. And certainly, if you look at this, it's clear they don't value tennis. They value the entertainment. I know those are strong words and broad terms. The numbers speak for themselves. Out of 485 million, if this pandemic goes through, meaning they're not going to have the U.S. Open, the USTA is meant to lose in revenue approximately 93%. 90% of their revenue is going to be gone for one year. Yep. Now, imagine what that does to tennis, quite frankly, very little. I mean tennis for the popular populace, right? I don't mean tennis mm-hmm. for players. For them, of course, they're going to be hurt. It's a problem. They got to be helped, of course. But at the end of the day, if all they got are $7.8 million out of revenue, and of that, half of it, if not 60%, is for adults, there's nothing for the kids. Right. And yet they paid $150 million to build a roof as a business investment. As you said, where you put your money tells you what you value, right? So we value the structure. We value the ability to protect our broadcast rights and not have to hold the men's final on Monday instead of Sunday. But I, it just confounds me to be so short-sighted to say, okay, we're going to protect that by investing in the structure, but you can have the nicest roof and the most beautiful stadium and the best restaurants. You got no players worth watching. You're not selling any seats. Nobody's tuning in to watch the broadcast. Your sponsors don't care anymore because there's nothing in it for them in terms of a marketing lift. And so those big hitter categories that you mentioned from their balance sheet go away. Not only do they go away, it's very hard to replicate them. Uh, Meaning they are targeting the wrong people that have no interest in tennis. And they're targeting the social event where it is to be seen. I have many friends who work in Wall Street and they love to go to the US Open. None of them play tennis, yet they go all the time. Uh, And that's the point, you see. So we're targeting to an audience that is not interested in tennis, but casually looks at it. And what we most need is an understanding of the demographics, an understanding of our youth, our understanding of how the country is changing, and our understanding of how the attention span of this new generation, by the way, is 15 seconds. Dory from Walt Disney has that attention span. And this is normal for all kids, mine included. How are they going to sit through a five-set match? No way on earth are they. So they're not 
doing what the sport needs. And this is the third point of the article, which is there is no vision for the future. Mm-hmm. So, Javier, let me a- ask this question. Um, you know, so the structure today, it's a mess. I mean, that was one, one of the obvious realities of tennis. You highlighted that in your article at medium.com. Um, but, you know, was there a time, I mean, let me, let me actually ask it this way, Javier. You know, in the late 1970s, there were so many more tournaments in tennis, so many more chances for players to go to a tournament in a small community, not necessarily a big city, and and make some money. Now, of course, the the amount of money in tennis wasn't nearly what it is today, especially at the at the Grand Slams. Um, but you could you could pick up a, a suitcase and and travel somewhere and play a tournament, like in New Hampshire or Kentucky, lots of places that don't have main tour events today. It was a very different landscape and. At least in the United States, it was a time when the sport was being grown. So, in terms of getting to the the, the point you made about you know players need to un, tennis players need to understand the business they're in. Uh, one of the basic things about being able to advocate for change, you need to know the history of your sport and the economics and the structure. So there was obviously a point where. The, the landscape of the late 1970s, early 1980s, it obviously changed. It became downscaled. It became more streamlined under the ATP and, and WTA banners. And a lot of these tournaments, which gave lower-ranked players more access to be able to pull down a paycheck, these lower-tier these lower tier tournaments went away in that process of streamlining. So when a player tries to understand the business, he or she is in, and that player tries to study the history of tennis over the past 40 or so years, where, where is the point at which the sport took the wrong turn, and where is the, what are the things that players need to identify from these last 40 years in terms of being able to negotiate with intelligence and uh, awareness so that they can drive a hard bargain with the Power 7 in tennis today? Well, I think, I think the answer to that question, in my opinion, is this. The sport did not change. That's error number one, meaning the people running the sport didn't change. Error number two is there was no attention being paid to the demographics. And this is a mistake that also country clubs made, which is where a lot of these events would take place or where a lot of the fans and the fan base and the players would come out of. And then, of course, you got to understand that uh, the demographic changes and the fact that women started to <clears throat> also work at the same pace as men within that time frame, and therefore there was less time, less time for the kids to do sports. And then you add to that that in the sports, in schools, at some point, <clears throat> physical education was taken away. So then all of a sudden, what had, let's say, a, middle, a high middle class appeal, all of a sudden shrank to a high-class appeal, however you want to determine what that high-class number is. But I would imagine today in America is for people that make over $200,000 on average, right? And, and so what happens is, is that by this dynamic changing and 
the USDA going from, at some point it used to have this philosophy, which is friends, fun, and fitness, which was a great thing that we currently need, actually. But when that changed, and they didn't change their thinking, they didn't change the way they approached the entire ecosystem of delivering tennis, and therefore where the players would fall into, and then the players then fall in love with it, and then they have a path to follow, they just followed whatever was coming. And this is the problem of the lack of vision as well. Because just as now the revenue seemed high and seemed big, the reality is they're not. $1 billion is not, I mean, it's a lot of money to have, of course, but in the bigger uh, sports <clears throat> arena, it isn't a lot of money. So tennis is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And the players need to understand, they need to understand that if they don't understand the business they're in, and how the demographics are changing, that it is very hard for them to have any kind of leverage when the people that run the sport change so little in what actually is the supply chain of players. If you were to design a supply chain, starting from the little kid all the way to a professional player, the last thing you would do is design it the way it is right now, because it is basically impossible to break through. It takes approximately six years to break through the top 100, which is to make money. In addition to that, each year probably costs on average 50 grand. You're already down 300, right? And then you already have six more years on top of the probably, let's say if you started at 15, you have 15 years already invested. So to be a professional tennis player, you're already starting at minus 600, minus 700 at the low end, $1,000. You play, and once you break in the top 100, you get injured. There's no insurance for that. You're out half a million dollars or not on the low end, which is why if they understood this and who controls it, they would say, forget it. We would, we would take the risk to become professional players. We want to do it. But we need leverage and we need to have and be participants of the revenue making because it is only fair. And this is another key point. If you want an ecosystem to work, it needs to be fair. If it isn't, it won't be fair for long. And this explains in part what has happened. It has shrunk to the point where we have very few players in the top 100. And the reality is nobody can make a player. That's another topic. But So you can spend all the money in the world that you want. You can't make a player. You just can't. Yeah, and I've been watching Versailles some during this time. And we all know what happened to Louis and Marie Antoinette. So just a thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, Javier, one of, the, one of the things you emphasize in your medium.com piece is the need to grow the game. And in part, at least, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things you're trying to say is that if, if, the, if the sport grows and you get a wider, diverse demographic of people who are interested in the sport and who uh, provide economic support for the sport, then you're not going to have just the old, crusty uh, dinosaurs running the show. You're going to have more stakeholders across more demographics. Is that is that an accurate representation of what exactly you're trying to say? Right. 
problems are solved if you have more people loving the sport. So the key issue to solve is how do you have more people love the sport? And when you do that, of course, they got to play. They have to have the right tournaments. It has to be engaging, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then all those people, and now the pandemic is actually a great opportunity because if there's a sport poised to have a lot of attention taken to because of the pandemic and the social distancing, that would be tennis. So you right know, and tennis ought to be broadcasting their best matches and even boosting you know, some of the movies, the one about Billie Jean King and things like that, because people are hungry for stuff to watch and it could be a time to to you know, latch on to some new people that don't even understand how exciting tennis can be, right. how strong the competition is, how exciting, and we talked about this the other day, a 16-year-old Rafael Nadal was at the U.S. Open and he's the reason why I had forgotten about tennis for 15 years of my life, and now I don't wake up a day without thinking about it. But not Rafael Nadal, the 10-time, now 11-time you know, French Open winner. Rafael Nadal, the 16-year-old fighter that just blew my mind away because I'd never seen anything like him in such a young person who was unwilling to give up. He would not yield, and I was like, what? I got to follow this kid. Like right now, for example, imagine if here in America they would be throwing ads left and right of the benefits of tennis, why you should be involved in tennis. And this pandemic is the greatest thing that happened to tennis because we have, we have a way of social distancing and then highlighting great stories and tying it to all the attractiveness of becoming a part of this tennis family, so to speak. But what do they advertise? Nothing. Because their mind, 93% of their mind of where their income comes from is we need to have the event, we need to have the event, we need to have the event. No, you don't, you won't have the event. What you need to do is focus on how to attract more people. Mm -hmm. And focus on what you can do, not what you can't do. Correct. Right, because that's fear-based thinking. I can't, I can't, oh my God, oh my God, we're stuck okay. Now what, now what, right? And just do something. Um, I lost my thought, go ahead. There was something I was gonna yep. ask, but it'll come back. You know, so is is this a does it matter whether um, players find more backbone and perhaps awaken to their situation and that creates growth in the game, or does the growth in the game have to occur first in order for players to have the greater understanding of their position in the sport? Does it matter how that progression goes? It does, because consider this. It's very different if all the players were American. Just, just as an example. It's easy, we have to speak the same language, we understand, we can communicate, everything is the same. When they come from multiple countries and multiple cultural backgrounds and multiple different upbringings, it is virtually impossible to unite. And the only way to unite, in my opinion, is to show them how the game attracts so few people. And because our common love for it, we unite towards a greater goal. The greater goal has to be to have more participation. Now, of course, it's, it's, it's easier said than done, but if you explain this but in the right format, the right way to the players, they'll all understand. We need to grow the game so they have a future and we want them to have a future because we want it to be on TV and we want to see the spectacles and we want to go see them. 
But we all need to understand the ecosystem that we have chosen to get into or be participants of. Not be surprised to learn, oh, this is the ecosystem, but I'm 15 years in it. Now I can't do anything. That is very different than going into a planned vision environment in which you know where your path is going to be and where it's going to take you. One key indicator to realize this and validate what I'm saying is you have to see the ages of the coaches in general in the United States. They're old. Because the economics are not there for the young guys. So if if the economics are not there for the young guys, who's going to be the next coach? Yeah. So, you know, obviously one yawning gap or chasm in, 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 in tennis is the absence of financial literacy for players that when they enter the sport, I mean, I, you know, so I'm a journalist or at least I'm a journalism major. I do sports writing. And one of the things I've had to learn in the 21st century after the fall of newspapers, you know, 40 years ago, if you were writing at a newspaper, if you were a newspaper reporter, you know, you had a massive newspaper infrastructure that was selling ads, print ads, and that was helping to pay your salary as a newspaper reporter. But of course, in the 21st century, in the online world, you know, reporters, journalists, they have to be their own freelancers, their own marketers. I mean, Sakib and myself with this podcast, you know, we have to try and market it to get sponsorships, uh, you know, get various connections that will give us, you know, some degree of revenue so that we can keep our website going. So like in the 21st century, in this modern context, you know, I as a journalist have had to learn that I have to be my own entrepreneur. And tennis players, definitely have to arrive at this same point of awareness. So if you were, if you had, let's say 10 tennis players, young tennis players in a room, 10, 18 or 19 year old tennis players from various countries, you had them in a room, what would be the core messages that you would send to them about financial literacy, how, what messages you need to do to build relationships and a coalition with other players to to create more economic and political empowerment in the sport? Well, <clears throat> that's a tough question to answer, but I would be blunt. I would tell them that the truth, because you see, I think the truth always saves you. First, because you never have to remember if you said something, then you'll just reason the same way. So it makes perfect sense to me. And yeah, a lot of people don't want to hear it. Even the kids wouldn't want to hear it. But I think they need to hear it. Being a professional tennis player is a mathematical uh, improbability. And therefore, if you want to pursue that probability because you feel like it, that is wonderful. Do it. Pursue it. But you need to understand where you're getting into. And you need to set up milestones as to if you haven't reached it by this point, you need to know because otherwise then you become uh, you become so disillusioned with the sport and the sport actually needs you to be in it. To help either as a coach, as a directive, as a sponsor, as a businessman, as, as whatever that, that case may be. But in the case of getting leverage towards the big seven, unless they unite and unless you speak the truth to all these players, and a lot of these players have invested their life savings or their family life savings with odds that they don't quite comprehend. That's like going to Las Vegas and gambling without knowing what your odds are and borrowing money against it. 
if you're a responsible leader of the sport, you don't let them do that because you know the odds are against them. You tell them, these are the odds of this happens, this is the odds, and then you can create the correct supply chain of tennis players and tennis professionals and tennis events and have the moral clarity to explain to them because what we see in the people that make the most amount of money is simply out of this world how fabulous they are. But that is not what the majority are. And this is also the moment Djokovic leaves, Nadal leaves, Federer leaves, the interest of the game will drop significantly because you don't have those superstars. It's no different than going to watch a movie with somebody really famous, even though the movie may be bad, you'll still go. Then going to watch a great movie with somebody not famous, chances are nobody's going to watch it. It's the same formula. I believe in honesty. And along those lines, Javier, do you see a line within the current ranking system where you say, look, if you have spent three years outside the top 500, think about becoming a pro at a country club or look to become a hitting partner on tour or some other way because odds are at this point not looking good that you're going to go much further that said i also hate the notion of telling somebody what they can't do but from a but from a sort of morality advice role what do you see in the current state the current state is unfortunately uh the information is not clear and so a lot of people continue continue to invest in and no they're not going to work out and that's why you have now the betting is going to take place, and that's going to multiply, especially with some states liberating their uh, and loosening their betting uh, laws. More people are going to bet, and therefore there's going to be more opportunity for the whole thing to be even more corrupt than what it currently is. And so, what I think needs to happen is, as long as you willing, you want to take on the world, that's fantastic. I think it's fabulous, but I think you need to be cognizant of the odds of what the real information is. So then if that doesn't work out, you still have a great system to go into as a coach, as a college coach, as a hitter, just like you said, or something like that, as opposed to not, because we need to attract and we need to think not only of those fabulous 100 stars or 500 stars that entertain us, but let's think about it. 500 men, 500 women, that's a thousand the sport is more important than those thousand players and the sport needs to have a support system if it grows to actually have the opportunities and the market. So those 1,000 players can make a decent living doing something that we all love. And if we bring them in, we're actually including them in the future growth of the sport. So therefore, anybody that has invested a lot of their time and resources getting into the sport <coughs> knows there's an outcome, no matter what the outcome is in the end, because it's an industry they have chosen to be in. And I think there's got to be clarity in that regard. And I don't think that clarity exists right now. Javier, I want to make sure to touch on one other thing you mentioned in your uh, Medium.com article. And it's not so much, you didn't write about it so much as you posted it in a graphic. And that was a model in which tennis has 
a governing body and a commissioner enveloping the power seven in an integrated way. So tell us how you envision a, a, a renewed struct, a new structure with a commissioner happening. Obviously, plenty of obstacles to that politically. But if it does happen, how would you see it happening? What would be the important uh, processes to make that actually happen? Okay. The current system right now is everybody is intermingled with everybody, so to speak, and whoever is convenient. And if you're a top player or belong to a top team, the better. If you're a big sponsor or sponsor the majority of players like Nike or Adidas or whomever, you have more power. And therefore, they can control and manipulate things as long and as good as they want. But all those things are all short term. And I have no problem if that is the choice to think short term. However, if you involve people's lives, I think you need a bigger responsibility and a bigger vision of the whole thing. If you let these companies run like they are running, they will survive, they will do fine, and it's fine for them. The truth is, it's not fine for the sport. You need a commissioner because the commissioner's number one mantle has to be to grow the sport, and not only for the pros. But when you, if you're going to grow it, you have to grow the well-being of it and everybody that joins it. And when the person goes in, they have to enjoy it and have a future and see an outlook. So they have to be subject to this bigger and better thinking for the benefit of the sport. In exchange for that, some decisions will have to be curved by the Grand Slam, by the ATP, and some of the players, probably some, depending on whatever new structure is put in place, will benefit because of this. But there has to be a greater mission. It's a, it's like almost like to 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 our lives, you know. Once you start your life, you think, oh, I gotta make the most amount of money. I gotta work hard. I gotta take, provide for my family. I gotta do everything. Me, 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 me. That's wonderful. But you reach a point in your life and you go, you know what? I really could have helped a lot more people. Why don't I try to do that? And probably we would have been better off altogether. And if it's a sport, that same logic applies. If you do it for the greater good, it will work. That is how the NBA works. Again, I don't want to compare a multi, uh, a team a sport versus an individual, but the logic of it functions. You have a supply chain system and it grows and it, it has a part and everybody has a path. And those among those, those who are fantastic geniuses or have so many talents, they will go to the top. But the system will be in place. No different than a forest. The forest, you're not going to cut trees for just cutting them and making the most amount of money that you can right now and then acquiring more land. This is what happens right now. If you're smart, you're not going to do that. You're going to let people go into the forest and whatever they cut, they got to plant again. So there's a forest forever for everybody. And everybody that lives in that forest lives well. And if those are that want to go beyond and be above, wonderful. But it's still, the, the goal is the forest must survive forever. The forest right now is for a few who control it, do what they want. And when they, they retire, what happens? They don't care. And the sport what? So on the lines of a commissioner, I wonder if you have any thoughts on who might take on that role. And one person I'm wondering about, just because I've read and I've seen some interviews with him, 
is the current CEO of the ATP, Massimo Cavelli, I think is the correct pronunciation. Um, he's relatively new. One of the things that he has spoken about is stop the infighting. Um, it's got to stop, you know, and I have forever felt tennis survived, I won't say thrived, in spite of itself because everybody sees everybody as a competitor and there's, you know, such little coordination to create standards and sustainability, as you mentioned, um, and things that could benefit everybody and ways that resources could be leveraged so that not everybody's spending repetitive chunks of their budget on the same thing that could be purchased one time, you know, by the database and share it with everybody, right? right. So I'm just curious your thoughts, if you know much about Massimo and anyone else that you see out there that might be a, a solid candidate, shall we I, say? I, yeah, I don't know about 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 him other than I, I, I read what I read about him. Obviously, if he's coming from the outside going in, he's going to see no infighting can lead to anything good, no matter where it's at. You can't. It's impossible to have progress if you have infighting. And if you have infighting and then you have the fragmentation, it's even worse. And then you have some people that control it, it's even worse. And then you have the people that come from all over the place, which means that you don't even get to talk to solve a problem. It's an absolute impossibility. There has to be the bigger vision. I believe he does. I don't know if he has the bigger vision or not, but I believe he is already identified the key issues that need to be identified. The power of the Grand Slams have, has to be reduced because they have too much power over the game and their interests are so overlapping over everybody else's that that has to be put on check. It would be ideal if they voluntarily put this on check. They're smart people. Those people that make and run these things, they're smart. But the greater good has to be the number one priority. Now, who could be this? I actually see this as a supply chain problem, not necessarily a tennis problem. The, what they are doing is unsustainable. We need to find a way that is sustainable. And I don't think you necessarily need to be a tennis person. There's lots and lots of business people out there with plenty of experience on how to handle all these things. Take the commissioner of the NBA. I mean, I don't know if he's played basketball or not. I'm sure he knows a little of basketball, but he probably has never played. And this is another thing that tennis players also think, and I think it's backward. And when I say tennis players, I mean anybody that's in the tennis world in some position of power. They think that unless you have played, you have no understanding that you could do. At the end of the day, it's just a business. It's just a business. And it's a business that involves sports, and it's a business that is not growing. It's actually decreasing. It needs a vision needs the right people and it needs the right buttons to be pressed and the right pain points so people actually feel engaged towards the sport and want to be part of it and parents want to invest their money in 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 this sport and coaches want to put their life into it and as far as the professionals are concerned the truth is they are first thrown so many countries i think the tennis players need to also comprehend and it would be great if this understanding came from the top because if the top group understands this, they will actually influence the rest. And then you are in a position of leveraging for the benefit of the whole. And all these people that have made significant amounts of, of, of money because of their success and because of how extraordinary they are, I would like to believe that they actually want to give back to the game. And there's nothing better than giving back to the game 
than giving a better system than the one they went through. That, to me, would be a fabulous thing to do. And a little accolade to Andy Murray. He is giving part of his winnings from the Madrid tournament to the player fund. Um, so that, that's a nice step and something that Sofia Shapatova said the other night. It's a little bit bittersweet for us. On one hand, we like to see that something's happening with tennis, something's starting again. On the other hand, from our position and vantage point, to understand that there's about $300,000 to be made by the players who already have the money and all they're doing is sitting on their couch playing a video game and we can't even make $30,000 a year, right. you know, playing all year long. But so. to take that concept of what you just said, all you got to do is how is it growing the game? If it was easy to contribute to a fund that's growing the game and easy for them to actually position it and give either to a particular uh, institution or coach or whatever, then it would. I think a lot of, I think what is needed the top players so they can put their heart into the sport back not for themselves but for the greater good they need to understand these numbers from a different point of view and in terms of numbers i do want to underscore from your article 1.75 billion dollars now you know it's still not on the level of bill gates wealth or jeff bezos but there is money in this sport and the fact that it's hidden away uh, and players are made to feel that they ought to just be grateful because they get to play the sport. And I'm not saying they shouldn't because a lot of people hate their jobs. You know, if you love your job, that's a beautiful thing. But by virtue of the fact that it's your job, you ought to be able to make a living. Correct. I agree. And, and, and that is a lot of money. That is a lot of money. And the players need to see a big, a bigger chunk of it. And, they really need to see a bigger chunk of it because we need them playing and we need them in future roles. I mean, if you just think big, and, and, and I don't mean big individually, I mean, what is it that embraces us? What is it that puts us together? It's the sport. So there's only one thing that needs to grow. It's the sport. From that, everything will follow. All right, so let's start to wrap up. Javier, are there any other points you want to make before we wrap up today that you haven't already had a chance to address? All I, all I would like to say in closing, obviously, is, is saying thank you for the opportunity to speak uh, and to, you know, uh, raise my views. I believe that we need to uh, start with the words we, uh, not I. And uh, I know in America, everything is me, 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 me. I think we need to start with me. Uh, can we do this? Can we grow? Can we do this together? And, and, and if we could just understand those two simple uh, letters, W and E, I think it's the beginning of a change because we need to help those who know less. We need to help those who need the help. We need to grow the sport because it feeds into my neighborly coach who I need uh, so I could go and get a lesson so my kids can go a lesson so he can make a living and so the kids that go there can dream of becoming a superstar and then he can be taken to the next level if he's so good and then move up move up uh, but it all starts with me and I think if anything I'd like for those people that listen uh, we the people and uh, to me those are the most magical words and I can't say enough of them because I actually believe them and I love them. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you shared your your green card ceremony. Welcome to the United States ceremony, which was a, a, a great uh, introduction to you and and what you're about. And it's interesting you say that because first of all, you underscore something that I thought about is. Tennis as an industry needs a team mentality. And as you said, it's a we. There's no I in the word team, right? And then secondly, um, you know, there's really a a couple of things that we need right now that I see as as real solutions. So some kind of unity among the actors, whether or not it's combining the ATP or WTA or not, let's see. We need a FEMA-like fund right now as a stopgap measure for those players that are quitting, are making decisions to quit because they can't go on. They just can't. You know, Sofia Shapatova talked about she won a spot into, or she became eligible for a spot in the French Open, first Grand Slam of her life. And she almost didn't even have the money to be able to travel to Paris to go there then she sat at dinner going, uh, you know, I better not order that salad because I might need that money to string my racket before my match tomorrow, and that's more important. Right. What kind of stress does it put on that kind of player? You right. don't perform that well under that kind of stress. Lastly, then, the long-term financial vision for how to grow the sport, which, as you said, organically grows everything else, supports everything else, but a vision that keeps the players in the center, in the, in the core of the organization, in the core of the influence, and core of the group that needs to be nurtured and given a voice and raised up in this respect. So a couple of just sort of, I think, fun slash interesting questions. I'm curious about your thoughts on the UTR, meaning the Universal Tennis Rating, and whether you like it, whether you see that being something in the future, and for those not familiar, it's really just another way to rate the performance of players um, that takes into account a number of different factors that's different from the traditional rankings within the ATP and WTA today. Yeah, uh, I, I think the UTR is wonderful for a multitude of reasons. First of all, because it breaks the gender gap and it breaks the age gap. Uh, in tennis, there's people or kids have four different ages, and you could relate this to, to, to even adults. How many, let's say a kid is 15 years old, just like you could say an adult is 40 years old. They have a biological age, is what their body shows. They have a chronological age, which is how many days they've been in this planet. Then they have a tennis age. And then that's how long they've been playing. So you could be 40 years old and be two years old in tennis, right? And they also have an IQ age, which is how smart they are. And UTR breaks down and allows, for example, I could play, let's say, a UTR level eight against a 12-year-old and have a great match. And he may live near me. I just don't know that he does. So it unites us. It allows that. The problem with UTR is that the fragmentation, the ITF, is developing a parallel system exactly the same and forbids any players or any federations in different countries to use the UTR system against the growth of the sport. So if you're a really good player in a club in some other country, 
and you know you have the only relationship with the ITF, you're not allowed to use this system. You're not allowed to run events under the system. This is a perfect example of a great technology that works, that grows the game, that the powers of B close the door shut to it because it doesn't serve their purposes. But I think it's fabulous, and I think everybody should adopt it. And that's why we need an alternative to this uh, system, which is the ITF and, and the ATP, for the majority of, of, of the people, and that is for the tennis republic that is, in general, out there. Mm-hmm. And I love your word choice. I took from this, it's forbidden technology. What? Yep. That's <laughs> what? I, I okay. Give this anecdote. I travel all over. And whenever I travel, I go do my business. And then the first thing I do is I make contacts with the tennis people. And then I go have dinner with them, usually players. A lot of them are my age. A lot of them are older than me. A lot of them are younger than me. But we talk about forehands and backhands and whatever. But when you learn that UTR is forbidden, that's like saying we have cable, internet, free Wi-Fi, but you can't use it. This is the level of thinking of the people that control things. Great example of one of many. Okay, so last sort of fun slash relevant question, given your role as a global business consultant, if you were to advise a retired player in this example, Maria Sharapova, on how she should get involved, should she get involved, what could she get out of this? How would this impact her legacy? What would you tell her? I would tell her, I will give you this example. A year ago, I was at the Miami Open with my son, and we met with Nick Bulateri. And I said, Nick, give some advice to my son, please, because he's great, but he doesn't want to work that hard. And he said, he came to my son, he said, son, what do you want tennis to do for you? That's his question. And I would say to Maria, Maria, tennis did everything for you. Tennis needs you. What can you do for tennis? Mm. Yep. Great question. Then I would say, you know, do this, this, and this, of course. <laughs> All right. Well, great insights, fantastic information, wonderful perspective, uh, leading from a heartfelt position, obviously. So uh, keep going. How do people get in touch with you? What's the best way to get in contact with you if somebody has a question, wants your advice, wants some support, wants to run something by you because they're afraid? Um, How do they do that? Okay, first of all, if it's tennis related, I wake up at any time because if it's tennis, I love it. Why? Because I think tennis benefited me a lot. I think I owe it to whomever needs my insight and help. That's one thing. My email is jpalenque at yahoo.com or you could find me in Twitter or you can find me in Facebook, which I use uh, as well. Uh, and you can find me in LinkedIn, Javier Palenque. And I'm always, always available for anything that has to do with tennis. And the reason I'm always available, besides the fact that I love it, is because I firmly believe if you share, you actually get two or three times what you share over your life. 
And very quickly, uh, your last name is spelled P-A-L-E-N-Q-U-E uh, for wondering about the spelling. P-A-L-E-N-Q-U-E. Javier, thank you very much for joining us. This was a great conversation. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And Javier, I feel grateful and so fortunate that I've had a chance to meet you. Oh, I can't tell you. you. No, truly, truly. Uh, tennis has brought so many great people into my life. And that I guess that's another aspect for me is just I keep meeting great people. And I'm like, I don't want to lose this. Because as you said, we all talk tennis. And when you speak that same language, it's just contagious. You meet somebody and in 10 seconds, you're like, you've known each other for 50 years. You know, it, it's extraordinary. I couldn't agree with you. Yeah.